Hi, it's Brett Kell, and this is the Total Life Complete Podcast, coming to you from the Transformation Room at The Grove. Today, I'm here with Justin Nigren, co-founder of The Grove Dallas, art event producer, and relational architect. Welcome, Justin. Thanks. Hopefully, today, we'll talk about community building, uh, social enterprise, and perhaps a little bit about sauerkraut. We'll see how we go. <laughs> nice. Okay. <laughs> All right, so we'll start off with the introduction. Uh, how do you introduce yourself at a party when people ask who you are? I uh, usually tell them I'm the owner of The Grove, which is a co-working space in the West End in downtown Dallas. Um, you know, it's a little bit more, uh, a little bit unique in that it focuses on social impact. So we're not just a standard co-working space uh, focused on just standard startups or freelancers. There's a larger social mission. Um, I'm also a dad. I got two kids. I got 50-50 uh, custody with them. So do my do my best to spend as much time with them as as possible and uh you know i, I guess you know my uh, uh my life's mission if you will is to leave the world a better place than than i found it um and you know i do everything that i can to keep myself involved in in uh in that space okay so let's talk you talk about the co-working movement um you know what is co-working and why is it a movement sure co-working uh as a movement of itself is uh, anywhere between 10 and 15 years old depending on what stories you hear and, and who you talk to uh really started around uh the time of the economic downturn where you had a lot of people being laid off they were subject matter experts and they were trying to figure out how to keep their heads above water really the 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 beginning of the the rise of the gig economy uh the freelance economy and, uh, you know, folks just began to realize, you know, why would I go and like sign a five-year lease on, on an office um, when there's five or 10 other people just like me and we could split that load and share that weight. And instead of buying five copiers for five businesses, you buy one and, and uh, you know, spread that cost across, uh, across the community, across the group. And so it kind of became known as collaborative consumption, basically. And, uh, you know, as more and more folks figured out, like, this is a legitimate way of, of lowering their costs and extending their network, um, kind of folks began, began to kind of move to the forefront of actually taking, uh, taking on that risk themselves uh, and then uh, allowing others to join in uh, as members in their, in their spaces uh, to where it's not everybody taking on the risk. Uh, it's, it's more uh, one person or, or a company taking on the risk and then uh, sharing the load with, 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 a, with a group of companies. Uh, so that's really how co-working came about. It's evolved. Uh, even, even since I've been involved in the co-working movement, I, I got involved in 2012. Uh, my first experience was with an arts community that was building a co-working space, and maybe we can talk about that a little bit later, um, and then fell in love with it. Just love the idea of, of, of community. I'm a natural connector and, and, and networker, and uh, so that's, uh, you know, that's kind of the basics of the beginning of the of the co-working movement. What qualifies it as a movement? Uh, um, you know, everything seems to be a movement now. Sure. We want to join a movement. I'm not sure how many movements you can be part of at the same time. Is, it, right. is there a limit? Or? Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's a great existential uh, uh, question. Um, you know, I, I, that's a that's a really good point. And I, I think now that companies like WeWork, uh, depending on who you talk to, there's there's debate on whether or not what WeWork does is 
actually considered co-working. They're more still uh, tied to the standard executive suite model, kind of like the Regis's um, have been uh, up until co-working. Um, so I, I, I don't know if it's if it's actually still a movement. I think it's it's still gaining momentum in some arenas, but in most developed cities, in most larger cities, um, it's become a, a staple in the the freelance and and uh, even in the in the traditional business community finding finding advantages of of uh, tapping into the co working community. So I don't know. I think we're we're in probably in a space where different arenas are in different phases of movement, you know, like Dallas, uh, is probably one of the later cities to really engage. I think co-working in Dallas has really only been, uh, really moving forward the last three to four years. Um, those of us that were kind of laying that foundation, there really, there was, there was no opportunity. There, there were no opportunities for co-working. Um, but then you go to someplace like New York city and it's 10, 15 years old and it's everywhere you know every everybody and their dog owns a co-working space you know in on the east coast um but then you know even you go to uh you know you go to old east dallas and there's no co-working you go to richardson there's uh, there's one popping up you know that's just about to you know probably launch by the end of this year um so i think different different places are in different phases uh phases of the movement you mentioned a couple of other organizations that provide uh, co-working or, or space re- rental services and i guess just anecdotally that's certainly from my perspective that's growing and and it seems to become these co-working spaces are popping up all over the place and right. the fundamentals fast forwarding more than a decade from when it started mm-hmm. seem to still be there right. um you know p- the gig economy uh, maybe even just explain what that is. Sure. Yeah. The gig economy is the the idea that uh, it, it, there's actually a great show today on um, uh, Terry Gross is actually covering uh, this question of uh, loyalty to companies. You know, it used to be you you know, you got a job with one company, you stayed with them 50 years and you retired and you got your pension and you got your gold pen. And, you know, uh, that just doesn't exist anymore. Um, you know, in, you know, is it a generational thing? Is it an economics thing? I think it's a combination of all of those. Um, but in terms of the economics, what people are beginning to realize is that they can take their talents. They can take the, the skill sets that they've honed over a period of time and source those out to multiple companies, uh, even multiple companies at one, at one time. Um, they don't need to be tied to somebody's desk from eight to five. They can literally work from anywhere in the world now that uh, we've got, you know, cloud computing and email. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, uh, you know, the, the world has changed. So the gig economy is basically taking those talents and skills and farming yourself out to uh, larger companies that can afford to pay you the rates that you want to make. There's kind of a philosophical approach to life uh, and work embedded in this um, this movement, um, continuing this topic, which is saying, okay, I'm, as you well summarized, um, instead of a job for life, I'm looking at myself and my, my, my strengths and what I can, the value I can bring. And um, this type of environment, a co-working space seems like a great place to locate to, to, to say, not only do I need a, a a place that's not my home to, to work from, but but also I'm self-identifying as somebody that is um, taking a different approach to creating work and value. Right, absolutely. And you know, one of the things that we talk about in the co-working movement is, you know, you've got uh, standard serendipity, which is you know you happen to meet the right person at the right time at a happy hour. Um, but if you can build a community inside of a co-working space, you can accelerate that process. 
Um, so there's the, there's the value of not only just having a space to work that's not your home, but also being involved in a community that's, that's there to fight for you and, and you know, help you grow in, in the way that, that you're wanting to grow. So I, I think it really is a values-based uh, values approach to, to work. You know, what, what do I want from my life? Do I want and, – and that's not to say that uh, a traditional job path at a 9-to-5 for a larger company, that it's not a valid – uh, career path, you know, it's not it's not an either or type of situation. Uh, I think it's just that we're in a period of of history where uh, that's not the only option anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you can if you can figure out how to make it work outside of that, uh, then you know the co working community can be the support system that you need. I want to come back to to what what makes a great community in a second. You've already started down that track. Just in terms of co working as a is it a, a catalyst? Is it responding to a demand uh, that was already already created, or is it something that is is kind of created this whole industry in its itself, mm-hmm. which is you know people can see people can visit here and see that there's alternative ways to to live and work. Mm-hmm. It's a, man, that's a really good question. Um, I, I think I think it's a little bit of it, you know creating itself and people being visionary enough to see the opportunity that was there, but also born out of the the changing uh, economic landscape that that we went through in in you know two thousand seven to two thousand ten, um, and you know when you f- when when people find themselves in situations that are outside of their control. Uh, like being laid off, uh, as you know, tons of people, including myself, were in, in 2009. You you have to find a solution, right? If if no no door that you knock on opens, well, then you cr- you you build a door, <laughs> um, you know. And in a way, that's that's kind of I mean, you know, with with Dallas, that's kind of I think what happened with us in in 2012 to. 13 um, was a lot of people saw the opportunity to to start building doors. Um, so you have folks like Nick Clark over at Common Desk, uh, one of the first ones to launch in Deep Ellum in 2012, and then us in 2013, and the deck uh, in in uh, 2013 as well, and Fort Work. Um, you know, just responding to what we what we saw was the opportunity to create environments that we were passionate about, that that brought people. Um, they were like-minded and kind of moving in the same direction, brought us all together. And, you know, the, the whole proverb of, you know, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Um, so I think it was, it's a mix of, you know, of us kind of creating the, the opportunities, but also responding to the need that we saw uh, in the community. Do you see that the uh, co-working community, is it still a community as this type of working becomes more prevalent, there's more demand for that and and there's economic profit available to folks potentially that, that are willing to set that up and more spaces are, get, are being set up. Will the community still be a community or is it now just it's it's been incubated now and, and now it's a, it's a free-for-all? Yeah, man, that's... Uh that's a hard question. Um, it's a good question, but it's also a hard question. You know, when we uh, when we kind of started kicking off our spaces in 2013, um, Oren from Fort Work and I realized that, you know, we as the smaller co-working spaces, quote unquote, um, as we were kind of getting our traction, we, we realized that, you know, we weren't going to be the only players in the game for very long. 
Um, and what we wanted to do was twofold. One, protect the community that we were building uh, at the time, but also protect ourselves from the conglomerate, from you know, like the WeWorks that would come in with large marketing dollars and, and announce that co-working was finally in Dallas, even though we'd been doing you know, the, the work for years. Um, so we started the Dallas Coworking Collective. That was back in 2013. Just realizing that we needed to provide a space for the owners of the spaces to stay open and communicate. Hey, where you know what's happening in your spaces? What some tips and tricks? And can we use collective buying power? All of those those types of things. Um, but. Uh, you know, as time has gone on, and we've all kind of had to get honest with ourselves about this, it's not easy to maintain that. Uh, none of us had the, the the time and energy to to devote to really making the collective what it can be, what it could be. Um, so it's kind of waned, and I, I think that I think that the the sense of community is still there in that we all understand we're part of a community of, of, uh, of workers in the city that, uh, that understand each other in ways that other people, uh, in, in, in maybe more traditional working environments don't. Um, but, uh, I think there's definitely room for us to, to grow on, on, uh, cultivating the true community between the spaces. Um, you know, we've got folks that have considered starting kind of a North Texas co-working alliance. Um, but again, it's just, it just takes a lot of time and energy. Um, and quite frankly, the funding just isn't there at this point. Just building on that, you know, what makes a good community? Yeah. You know, I, just as a bit of a side note, I was talking with BJ Van this morning who has Impact House over in uh, East Dallas. Or Fair Park area, and one of the conversations that we had was around you know people not wanting some some people not wanting to become a member at one place because then they would feel like they were rejecting everybody else and and kind of drawing you know, drawing a line in the sand between you and 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 those other spaces and uh, you know it's definitely not the environment that we want to cultivate we want to cultivate one that's 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 open um, uh, but you know that's a challenge. I would say what makes a community inside a co-working space is the the common vision, um, you know, and, and being tied to uh, you know a narrative that's larger than yourself, right? And so, you know, with the deck that plays out with the startup community. Uh, there was not a lot of support for the startup community prior to the deck, uh, the deck launching. Um, but they've done a great job in, in expanding the narrative of we are here specifically to support startups, uh, you know, that will go through accelerator programs and, and get angel and VC money and go for an exit. For us, our narrative has been in the, in the social impact space that and if you're in Dallas and you're interested in changing the world and doing something positive, this is, that's our DNA. That's our, that's our mission. And the majority of our programming supports the, the people that are in, in that, uh, in that, uh, arena. What makes a, a you know, a community within a co-working space is, is that shared, shared mission and vision. Uh, but really more than that, uh, it's the relationships that take place inside that space. Um, so just really creating that space for those relationships to be cultivated and, uh, and, and grow. Then in terms of a, the larger community itself, um, again, I think that's kind of what we've struggled with over the last three, four years is, you know, how do we, what's the united voice, you know, of the Dallas co-working community? That being said, uh, we had a meeting at the end of last year over at uh, Genius Den, 
end uh, a guy that came in. He's he's global co-working guy, Mike De La Rosa, and uh, very involved in the co-working movement. And just from the conversations that he had had with us about you know the work that we've done together between our spaces and those types of things, he said that we were the probably the most developed community of communities that he had seen in the world which you know when you're in it all you know it's, it's like you know when you're when you're in it you, all you can see is the weaknesses you you forget about uh the the fruit and the and the work that you've done so it's nice to have somebody you know who's who's been involved around the world to come in and say you know you guys are you guys are light years ahead of um you know most of the cities in the world um, and you know, I, I would attribute that to uh, you know the the owners of the spaces. You know, we, we decided early on that it would be we would take a co-opetition approach. Um, you know, even though we're in the same industries and potentially quote unquote fighting for the same customers, uh, we're again we're stronger together than we than we are apart. Um, you know, and I'm I'm happy to say that uh, two at, at Three of the co-working spaces that have launched since we've been open, the founders came out of the Grove. Um, so I feel like we, we in the early days, did a fairly decent job of helping people understand those, you know, what, what makes a successful co-working space. You know, and then they've been able to take that DNA and go out and, and hopefully inject that into, into their spaces. Let's talk a little bit more about social entrepreneurship and, and in the context of the Grove and more broadly, um, what is social entrepreneurship and, and why does it matter? Oh, so what is social entrepreneurship? Um, that's Pandora's box, right? Um, briefly, social entrepreneurship is taking this uh, entrepreneurial mindset, this entrepreneurial approach of uh, solving uh, old problems with new methods or uh, taking old methods and making them more efficient. Um, and uh, taking that approach and focusing on anything that has to do with social impact. So that's environmentalism, that's racism, that's uh, poverty, that's environmentalism. And in, in social entrepreneurship, there, there's a spectrum from the, the nonprofit world to the for-profit world. And what we've typically taken an approach uh, to solving these problems is through the nonprofit community, which is your 501c3s. And uh, over the years, we've become, we've come to realize that that's just not a sustainable model for truly addressing the root issues that uh, we're typically addressing the, the fruit issues of. Um, so, you know, a great example is, you know, the Red Cross, after there's an earthquake or a hurricane, they come in and they bring in uh, clothing, they bring in food, right? So they're addressing an immediate need that a for-profit business just simply cannot address. So they operate on this charitable uh, model that sustains them year year after year. Then, uh, then the, the, the questions that started be being asked in the 80s and 90s, kind of on a more academic level, uh, was how do we create sustainable models that not only address these fruit issues, but address the, the root systemic issues that are causing the, the problems that we're trying to address? So uh, instead of simply doing charity drives for people in poverty, how do you, what's causing the poverty? And can we use the model of capitalism to address those issues to create sustainable models to get people out of poverty? So those those are your kind of your two ends of the spectrum. One is the the nonprofit charitable model, and then the other end is the the strictly for profit uh, for profit for good model. Why does it matter? Um, it matters because we live in a broken world. 
uh, and it's good to try and make the world a better place. I mean, that's a super simplistic answer. Um, but uh, like I said at the beginning, I mean, that's kind of my personal drive is uh, I know there's solutions out there. I know there are ways to get people out of poverty. I know there are ways to get healthy food into communities that don't have access to food. And it matters because they're human. You know, these people that are experiencing these issues, they're not a statistic. They're humans just like we are. And I feel like those of us, uh, especially those of us who, um, you know, have a better opportunity or have had better opportunities in life simply because of luck and chance, nothing that we chose, um, that we have a moral obligation to help those in our world that, uh, that have not been given those same, uh, same opportunities. I know there's a lot of people that disagree with me. Um, you know, the whole like, you know, well, if you work for it, then it's yours. And, uh, and if people don't want to work for it, then they don't deserve anything. Um, I think that's way too simplistic of a conclusion to come to in life, given the complexity of the world that we live in. We're sitting here in Dallas, Texas, and um, both business and uh, and nonprofit are both big business here in this in this city. So, how does social entrepreneurship fit in here? Is it actually does it find a more fertile ground here, or are people kind of confused and go, where, where does this fit in with what we've got already? Yeah, on the on the nonprofit side, I mean, you're right. I mean, it's big business. The United Way of North Texas uh, is one of the largest. I think it's one of the oldest in the country, if I'm if I'm not uh, mistaken. And you know, they do amazing work, and they will continue to do amazing work because they continue to improve their model with things like the Ground Floor, which is their social entrepreneurship accelerator program that we're fortunate uh, to get to partner with them on. Intellectually, that's been the model that people are able to wrap their mind around. Okay, I go and I become a CEO of a company, I do great, and now I can want to give back, and so I contribute to and become a mentor or you know, do those types of things and get involved in, in nonprofits. Um, but again, as, as people are beginning to question are, what kind of an impact are we really having? Um, you know, the, 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 the models are beginning to evolve and I, those conversations are beginning to evolve as well. And I mean, that's been kind of one of my personal missions over the last four years is to, to move the social entrepreneurship um, conversation further down the road. And, you know, again, we're fortunate enough to partner with United Way, to partner with social venture partners, these folks that are really pushing the, the boundary on how we address these issues. So, uh, you know, this year is the first year that um, the Big Bang Conference that uh, Social Venture Partners puts on. Uh, the whole focus this year is on impact investing. So how do we take, uh, you know, the models that we're inv investing in startups and tech startups, uh, you know, putting in some seed money, putting in a little bit, you know, larger amounts and hopefully looking for some kind of long-term financial return while also having some kind of social impact. Um, that's that's the whole theme of the conference uh, this year, so I think it's 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 moving. We're 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 moving the conversation forward, and the more uh, the more opportunities that we create for people to become informed about uh, the these models, um, the the faster we'll move we'll, we'll move that conversation down the road. So it's happening. You know, it's 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 taken a little while, but it's it's happening. I know you uh, do quite often talk about um you know narratives and dialogue and and all of these sort of things and 
there seems to be a role for social enterprise, if, if nothing else, to be an interpreter between a for-profit business and non-profit to, to say, to, to be expert at plugging into both um, sides and not only in, in terms of getting money from one side to the other because that seems to work quite well at the moment but actually getting practices and people to work across and and to to tackle projects uh, collaboratively mm-hmm. as opposed to saying okay well we're going to donate this money and and um, we'll get you know some results and uh, and stats and photo opportunities out of it and then that's it you know right right yeah i mean there's a lot of uh, a lot of ways that the 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 traditional for-profit community is beginning to engage in social impact. It's been traditionally done through their CSR departments, corporate social responsibility. Um, and this can be, you know, everything from having a recycling task force, you know, for every department um, to, uh, you know, uh, employee volunteering opportunities. One thing that's that's been growing over the last few years is skills-based volunteering. So instead of just, I shouldn't say just, but instead of a group going and volunteering for Habitat for Humanity, it's, you know, the accounting department specifically uh, aligning themselves with nonprofits that the company believes in um, and going and helping those nonprofits develop their accounting systems and, and, and implementing better practices and those types of things. Um, and actually, uh, entre- uh, EFNT, Entrepreneurs for North Texas, uh, is a great organization that's helping uh, helping companies really plug in based on on their company vision and those types of things. Um, but then, you know, it also kind of goes the other way where the the startup community and, and the, the, the business communities uh, uh, helping the nonprofits, uh, helping nonprofits really uh, engage on a more um, professional level, right? As opposed to seeing their nonprofit as a passion project, operate it like a business. Um, you know, we've been able to work with with um, the ground floor program and helping those nonprofits engage with with startup principles like rapid prototyping, you know, uh, customer discovery and lean canvas and those types of things. So it's been really cool watching, uh, you know, either either end of the spectrum begin to embrace the the values and the strengths of of, of the other end. Just picking up on the term um, operate this like a business, and I think you've clarified it as well to say. Um, you know, what is operating something like a business? It, it's taking some inputs and then looking at the outputs you're getting from that and the process you use to develop them and mm-hmm. kind of measuring the impact out of this. Is that what it is in managing this like like a business? Is it right. just really focusing on the the impact and the outcomes and trying to increase that per unit put in? Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know the donors for, on the on the nonprofit side, donors are becoming more more and more smart about where they 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 put their money and they want to see not just that a program's running or just you know that that uh, you know some kids got fed, but really what's what's the data? you know what true impact are you having? So really helping the nonprofit community, establish measurement guidelines you know how okay you know if 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 you've got an after school program for for literacy how do you measure the the effectiveness of of that um you know if you've got uh uh you know food food programs for for south dallas how do you measure the effectiveness you know somebody like bonton farms who uh you know in the middle of a food desert and they're they're launching a cafe you know uh on on the farm well how do you measure the effectiveness? So really helping nonprofits begin to wrap their mind around what what what's the data that they're that they're focusing on and how do you translate that for your donors to to help them understand 
the the impact that that you're having. Another term you mentioned is food desert, which is something that I've heard more and more recently. Right. Do you want to explain what that is and, sure. and why we've got one here in, in Dallas? Yeah, uh, the why we have one here. Uh, that's a that's a that's a systemic question. I think it's a cultural uh, question around. Uh, how the city of Dallas views uh, the residents south of I-30, quite frankly. Um, but food desert is uh, any area that, and, and there, there's some folks that have, you know, an actual mile uh, point, but that, that, that does not have uh, easily accessible healthy foods. So, you know, typically in impoverished neighborhoods, you know, you've got a corner store that has, you know, fried chicken and chips, uh, but rarely any fresh fruit, any fresh vegetables. And so, uh, you know, you, 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 you basically develop a, an area where, um, access to healthy food is not, is not easily, uh, attainable. Um, so for instance, in Bonton, uh, Darren Babcock tells the story of, you know, after he moved down there, said, hey, you know, I want to get groceries, got a few of the guys from the local community to help him get from his house to the nearest um, grocery store, and it was by bus. And if I remember correctly, it was over an hour trip on the bus uh, to get there, and they get there, and, you know, he's not taking into account that they've got to take everything back <laughs> on the bus. So this is a, a typical food desert um, situation where if you really truly want access to healthy food, it's way more work to get that than it is to just go down to the corner store and, and get something that, that, you know, could potentially kill you easily. Um, so yeah, so Dallas is uh, one of the worst food deserts in the country. Um, but there are some really great folks that are, are doing work like Bonton Farms that uh, they're helping to helping to address that. Let's talk a little bit about your journey. And I know you like to sometimes put a phrase out there for people to react to. So uh, should you play to your strengths or fix your weaknesses? I, for a long time, thought it was fix my weaknesses and, uh, you know, put myself in, in positions to try and do that. Um, but uh, it's, it's been about a year and a half ago now that I've completely flipped that switch. And uh, it's all, for me, it's all about the strengths and then building teams and community around you to, to offset that. Should we talk about StrengthsFinders? Yeah. Uh, so StrengthsFinders is uh, one of those personality profile tests that uh, is developed by Gallup. And uh, they have a list of, I think it's 37 strengths that, uh, that they've come up with. And you can take this test and you can either pay for all of them or get your top five. Most people do the top five. And when I took the test, this was like November, December of 2015, I guess, the, the, the light bulb went off and I realized every successful venture that I've been a part of played to my strengths. And every business that I had started or organization that I had started that had failed were ones that I had tried to, or I put myself in, in positions where uh, I just was not focus, focusing on my strengths and, 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 and playing to my strengths. Um, and so I, I'm a firm believer now of, of playing to the strengths and, like I said, building, building that community uh, and team around you to, to offset, the, offset the weaknesses. We, we sat in this very uh, room a, a couple of weeks ago just to, uh, I'd ask your assistance in um, understanding a bit more about social enterprise in Dallas and the lay of the land. And, and uh, I'd enjoyed our conversation and, uh, and become a member here. So <laughs> that's, uh, that's that. And um, 
But also, I know we, we talked a little bit about Strength Finder, and I, I've got no affiliation with them. You can easily go online and find out what people say about Strength Finder. But I noticed for yourself, it, a light bulb moment had gone on. And I think sure. just a philosophical point, I guess, for the listeners, which is, you know, um, quite often you, you, you're in a situation and you feel like you're losing. <laughs> you wake up every day and it's, it's difficult and you're going uphill and all that sort of stuff. And it's only later on when you can look back at it, as you have done, and say – really I'm playing to my weaknesses every day which is a pretty difficult and I think you can probably feel that you're working really hard and you're investing a lot um, when you're playing to your weaknesses and not getting necessarily a lot of results out of it yeah your your ROI is (laughs) you know not uh, you know if if you were a business you know what what's what's your ROI with the amount of energy that you're spending Um, another great book in that you know uh, kind of in that general direction is ROE powers ROI by Mike Rose Um, but uh, yeah strengths finders it's I I stopped short of saying it changed my life Um, I think it just it changed my perspective on life Um, you know my number one strength is belief you know and, and had somebody told me that 10 years ago uh, you know, where, where that strength is, you know, I function best when I, when I put myself in companies, organizations, scenarios where I believe in the moral contribution of, of, of the whole. Um, if somebody would have told me that was my number one strength 10 years ago, my path would have been completely different. Um, you know, and number two is connectedness and being able to see connections and, 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 uh, opportunities that others don't and helping facilitate those. Um, you know, I, I kind of just knew it and I did it intuitively, but seeing it as a strength and, and intentionally implementing oppor- or creating opportunities to function in that strength um, has, I mean, just changed everything this last year, year and a half. You've talked about serendipity and then I guess a characteristic of a good community is this kind of structured serendipity, uh, accelerated, accelerated ser- yeah, serendipity. Yeah. So, so arriving here at this very moment as we sit here in the Grove, is that was that serendipity or inevitability or chance? All of the above. Can we do uh, answers? That's D? allowed. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I think it's, you know, it's, there's circumstances that are out of your control. There's circumstances that you can control. There's circumstances that you try to control that just, you know, refuse to be controlled. Um, you know, my, you know, this, this phase of my life, the journey started in 2009 and, and it was a layoff. Um, I was an AutoCAD illustrator and it was probably the only desk job I ever loved. Uh, got to draw all day and work on patents from Google. I mean, it was, you know, it was great. Um, but again, out of my control, that you know, economy had turned down. The the firm eventually declared bankruptcy. Uh, you know, so you know, wasn't anything of of that I could have done differently there. Um, and then you know, living in an economy that that wasn't hiring anybody with my skill sets, found myself, uh, you know waiting and and hoping for that serendipitous moment that something would click and, you know, I'd meet the right person at the right time. Um, And again, you know, the intentional part is putting yourself in situations where that serendipity can take place. Um, You know, that's where you can, you've got a responsibility in fate. You've got a responsibility in serendipity, in, um, uh, in, in, in these opportunities. Um, And, you know, the the kind of turnaround was a serendipitous moment. Um, I had taken action and, and emailed a group of about 10 to 15 of our close friends and said, look, this is where I'm at. I'm tired of working these contract jobs. Got to do something for my family. And uh, one of those friends had heard about the, the, the art house um, project, um, which 
I didn't know had stalled. It had stalled out. And I went to go kind of pitch them on hiring me to run it when it was ready. And uh, serendipitously <laughs> found out that it had stalled. There was an opportunity there. And What is oh, that yeah. project? Just to oh, explain yeah. to the listeners Sorry. a bit. Uh, so Art House Dallas is a, a nonprofit here in Dallas that was uh, kind of similar to the arts organization that I and a couple uh, friends had started in 2007 basically um, mentoring, nurturing, cultivating artists and building opportunities for them to create community. And uh, they uh, had been, I think, uh, in Dallas for a year or two and uh, maybe two years. And they were uh, working on creating a co-working space for, for specifically for artists. And, you know, that was, again, that was my background. A lot of, uh, a lot of most people in Dallas knew me for, uh, for our organization, Art Love Magic. And so it's, perfect fit. And, uh, so yeah, at the, at that meeting found out that it had basically stalled that the, you know, just too much on, on the plates for the folks. And, you know, I, I pitched them on hiring me to finish, finish the project. And that was a huge risk on my part. I'd never done anything, you know, uh, like that, but knew that I had also had the resources and the community around me to, 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 uh, at least try and make it happen. Um, and so, you know, the, the question of, you know, serendipity versus, you know, are, are you responsible for, for, for fate? I think it's, I think it's all the above. I, you know, I, I wouldn't be here, uh, doing, doing the Grove, uh, without the serendipity, uh, you know, those, those chances that happen to come across your path, but it's also what you do with those, those chances and opportunities. I could have just as easily have said, oh, well, I'm sorry, your project stalled, you know, call me when it's done. Um, I hope, you know, best of luck. Um, but, you know, I was intentional about engaging, uh, engaging in that. And I think that's another, um, you know, personally, just on a philosophical level, um, being intentional, it, 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 you know, it, when, I, when I say it, it kind of sounds like a, you know, well, duh moment or, you know, kind of reaction, but being intentional about the opportunities that you take, being intentional about the decisions that you make and, and the the circumstances that you put yourself in, um, I think is key. That's that's key to to success. And you know, what I found for or you know I, the way I kind of operated for a long time was just uh, you know being a victim of the circumstances and not uh, not being clear about the direction that I, I wanted to take with my life. But once I got clear on that, that's when doors start opening, you know, that's when, uh, you know, relationships start forming and, and, uh, opportunities, um, you know, opportunities come up that you couldn't have, have, have baked up in your, in your wildest dreams. I wonder how much of serendipity comes as a result of necessity, you know, being the mother of invention, you know, people, don't tend to ask for what they really want out of life until a, a desperate state. <laughs> You've lost your job and you go, oh, I've lost my job. That's terrible. Now I'll do what I really want to do. You know, right. it, maybe that's an ingredient in serendipity somehow that, that you know, the, the blinkers come off and uh, as a result of a life event and the serendipity is actually having something bad happen to you that allows, sets you up for what you really want to do to, to be honest with yourself and express yourself. Right. There's a great, uh, great documentary that I watched after, after my layoff called lemonade. 
Um, and I, th- I believe it's free now. Uh, you, you can buy the DVD, but it's stories of exactly that. The, you know, the, the pink slip being the ticket to the future. Uh, so there's folks that, you know, they, they cashed out their 401k and started a mobile coffee shop. Uh, you know, uh, one guy decided to become a full-time artist. Uh, but again, you know, the, the running theme was them just coming to a point of realizing life is too short, you know, and, you know, that was a, uh, you know, that was a, a turning point moment for me. You and I talked about this when, when, uh, when we first met, um, you know, near death experiences too, not, not just a layoff. I mean, uh, in, in a way layoff can feel like a near, <laughs> near death experience. Right. Um, uh, but you know, when you, when you come to that point of clarity where, uh, you, in a sense, you're kind of forced to ask the question, what do I want out of my life? What do I really want out of my life? Um, you know, another way is, of, of asking that is, you know, what's the narrative that I want my life to tell? You know, I'm, you know, I've got two kids. Um, the narrative that my father passed down to me was not a great one. Um, and I've got an opportunity to shape their whole future based on the decisions, um, and the intentionality behind those decisions, um, to create a new narrative, uh, for them. So, yeah, I think, you know, the, the serendipitous, uh, side, uh, can create, um, you know, kind of those, those, um, vortices is that is that the word i'm looking for and if it's not it is now um uh you know there's multiple vortexes uh of opportunity if if we'll be intentional on on engaging those opportunities storytelling is something that comes up a lot um you know in in previous interviews we've had here you know, storytelling is a tool for business and certainly as a buzzword now and i often reflect on this i mean storytelling as, as someone who uh writes poetry and stories obviously there's a certain um uh resonance to that idea but i I also just wonder in the age that we're living in you know um the fake news and fragmented attention you know uh social media universe that we're in where the stories we're getting back to basics and and just Mm. having a story that you can understand kind of gives you enough stability and 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 the power to write your own story, I think, is amazingly empowering, you know, the, the day that you wake up if, as a result of an event and say, you know, I'm crafting a narrative arc and what arc am I on if it's not the right one? I, I've got the power to change that. Right. Yeah, I, uh, it's, it's interesting. Um, as you were saying that, I just kind of had a little personal uh, insight that for generations, the narrative was given to us. Right, whether it was through the church or the institutions, uh, you know, our religious organizations, r- religious institutions, we were given the narrative, and I shouldn't say we, the 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 culture was was determined by the narrative that was that was handed down that from from those communities. It's not like that anymore, right? The narrative is dispersed. The narrative has been open sourced, in a way, and that can lead to huge cultural confusion, right? I mean, we're talking about the great democratic experience or uh, experiment, right, that, that, we're, that we're living in. Um, this kind of narrative has never existed before that we, that we know of. Um, and, you know, when you create a culture where the narrative isn't dictated by one institution, um, but you create an empowered 
community that is is given the opportunity to create their own narrative, um, that's a powerful thing, and that's the world that we're living in, right? And so, you know, with social media, we're 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 kind of authoring our own narrative and, and the way we want people to understand us and, and, and our lives. And that can be a good thing or a bad thing. That's a whole nother, <laughs> a whole nother conversation. But what it does, I think it gives us the ability to create uh, kind of sub narratives within uh, the cultures that we live in. Again, that kind of goes back to co-working, right? People wanting more than just being able to, you know, okay, it's great. I can work from home, but what is that really doing? You know, now I'm missing community. Well, and we're creating this narrative that says you don't have to. You can still be an independent worker, but you don't have to lose that that the the opportunity for community. Um, so yeah, we're we're living in a really really interesting age when it comes to to kind of what's the narrative, you know. And there's probably some some level of angst as well with uh, you know as you move from a, a, a cultural narrative that says, and certainly for for the way I've, I've grown up and wrote about in my book. Um, you know, working class background and then moving, getting one of the first in my family to get a, a degree and then move into professional work and, and do that. That's kind of a narrative that you, <laughs> you can get you, you can say, look, this is my responsibility. This is the next step and I need to climb the ladder and, you know, have expensive stuff and go to restaurants and travel because that's really fulfilling right. that's my self-actualization but it's 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 actually not really <laughs> you know and that's why i have a bit of a problem with Maslow's hierarchy of needs and what self-actualization actually means and and it can be misunderstood as meaning which is um not just pursuing a narrative given to you by someone else or that you've inherited to its logical conclusion I kind of did that and then went, okay, I've, I've done that now. I've been successful and I've had all those experiences. However, I, I feel hollowed out inside. You know, I'm not expressing myself in other parts of um, my values, you know, teaching, learning, giving back, you know, all of those sort of things I'm creating. Yeah, that uh, it's the more you and I talk, the more I'm just kind of, I, I just get dumbfounded of how similar we've had so many similar experiences, but you know, my moment uh, for that was I had been in ministry, you know, for almost 15 years and uh, you know, our family had a car accident and, you know, just realized the, the, the revel, one of the revelations that I came to was I was living somebody else's story that was handed to me from the culture that they had, that they had created and that was if you wanted to be spiritual and you wanted to be a leader, well, then you become a pastor and you go to school for that and you build a church and you build it big and that's what you do. And, uh, you know, the, the accident gave me the freedom to say no, like that's not my story. That's not who I am. That's, you know, somebody else's suit coat that they was tailored for them and they, you know, they assumed it would fit, it would fit on me. Um, and, but, you know, there's a process that comes after that, that revelation. I think that's probably a lot of the, the folks that you're reaching out to, to help kind of walk through that transitionary period of, man, I've been on this path for X amount of years. I've dedicated to it, but it, it's just not who I am. How do I get out of this, this, you know, we used to call it the rat race, but you know, how do I get off the treadmill? How do I write a new chapter? Um, and, you know, again, I mean, I just, I just always go back to community. You know, you, you don't do it in a bubble, you know, don't do it in a vacuum. You know, there, there are, uh, there are people out there that are ready and, and happy to help you craft, you know, the next chapter. And I've had the, the joy 
of watching multiple people go through that over the last four years, um, come in with no vision, no resources, questioning whether or not they wanted to live, you know, even to that point. Um, and you know, begin to actually make good on their personal dreams, their, their, um, their personal vision. So it's, you know, it's definitely worth the work. Great point about uh, community there, because my next question was going to be, um, you know, how can you make a change in your life without having to have a car accident? And I know we were we were talking about, um, I'm, I'm drafting an article on, uh, you know, what I've learned from near-death experiences and those types of things where you consider your mortality, because it's taken a number of those and then a kind of a, a living near-death experience where you realize that your current path is really heading off in a direction that you don't you don't want to and it, the logical conclusion of that is a life not lived <laughs> um which is a form of, of near death maybe uh, and then uh, moving over to a different path and and you know i often say part of that is um acting and interacting with other people is a way to redefine what your story is you know because doing something making a small change in your life slowly redefines who you are but to your point about community you know meeting somebody similar to you that is doing a living a different life or has been through that seems to be a real way to to accelerate that yeah i think there's a, a couple points to that one is um incremental changes change nonetheless right so making 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 small changes uh in your life to to begin to move in the direction that that, that you want to go in despite your circum your current set of circumstances um, you know, something as small as just, you know, once a week, go on a hike, get with, get alone with your thoughts. Right. Um, you know, and this is something that I struggle with, you know, like, you know, we're, we're constantly on or, you know, the internet is constantly accessible, even in the woods <laughs> on a hike. Um, but you know, turn off the phone, turn off the computer, just go, go really contemplate what, what do you want? What do you want, and and what's you know what's a one small decision that you can make to to begin to move in that direction? And again, that back to you know intentionality. Um, but two, you're right. I mean, it's it's getting into community with people who have gone through what you want to experience. Um, you know, and 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 those com those communities are out there. Right. Uh, I, I would hope that the Grove is, is one of those that, that people can can see it as a place of potential tra personal transformation um, and, uh, you know, find, you know, meetups, whatever it is, you know, Eventbrite. There, there, there are opportunities out there to engage with people who have gone through uh, gone through the process of redefining their narrative, redefining their uh, redefining their story. Um, and you know, reach out to me, I, <laughs> like send me an email, you know, I'll, I'll go have coffee. Um, I love walking with people that are in that, uh, in that space of questioning. Um, again, you know, I, I see what the potential is, you know, it's, it's hard work. It's difficult work. Um, but the way I see it, you can, you can wait for your near death experience to kind of pressure you and push you or, or wait for your layoff. Uh, to, to hold your feet to the fire, or you can begin to be, you know, um, to, to take those intentional steps to, to, move, to move in that direction. Either way, it's hard work. Either way. There's a way to use social media more productively. What I found is amazing is since I've, you know, left the corporate world and 
I finally joined uh, Twitter, the last person on earth that finally joined her. But um, I, I've actually started out from scratch. And what's been most interesting is I probably joined Twitter almost a year after finishing my job and after writing the um, book and, and starting a business. So the sort of folks that I've added on Twitter have been folks like yourself and the Grove and community organisations. And what's amazing is that every time I open up my Twitter now, it, it's um, lots of stories about humanity, you know, and lots of things that I, I find inspiring and just reinforce and, and, you know, allow me to develop and, 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 and grow in, in my understanding of what's going on. And mm-hmm. I, I think it's amazing uh, that I've, you know, I'm, I feel fortunate that I've joined uh, at this time, you know, I can imagine if I'd joined years ago, all of my um, feed would be about, I don't know, about buying a speedboat right, <laughs> or, right, right. Yeah. or something like that, you know, exclusive getaways to de-stress and, uh, yeah. and have some mindfulness time. And, um, you know, thankfully, it's not cluttered up with all of that, right. that rubbish. I can just, uh, you know, just learn about real stories about people instead. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there, there's value in curating your content. Um, you know, the, people talk about kind of the, the, uh, the view bubble, right. Where it's so curated that, that you're, you know, you're just continually reinforcing your own beliefs. Um, I don't, I don't think that that's necessarily healthy. Um, but I think it is healthy to, to realize, you know, if you're going to spend any time, any amount of time, uh, ingesting, if you will, uh, this, this media, you think about what you're, what you're, what you're bringing in, you know, and, uh, you know, it's, it's okay to want to be aware of good things, (laughs) you know, and not be constantly inundated with, with, uh, the horrors that are happening in our world. Um, so I think there's, there's a, there, there, there's a balance, uh, there, there's a balance there, uh, curating to where, you know, the social media isn't, um, isn't a negative force in your life, uh, but not to the point where you're you're so um, Pollyanna about it that you that you're you're not in touch with with the reality of of, uh, of the world that we're trying to, to to change. I think that's a great point, and it seems like a, a skill that um, you know that needs to be developed, and maybe. Uh, for generation X's like myself, you know, we've got to, we've got to sit down and intentionally do that. I, I've been fortunate, given that um, my curation has gone a bit the other way. It's a bit biased now, probably to nonprofits and social entrepreneurship, and and very low on on new traditional news sources and other things. Um, but obviously, I still look at those from time to time, but certainly not in my feed at all. I, I've been very conscious about not doing that. Let's talk a bit about Art Love Magic. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So how did that start and what's that? And it's a great name. I, yeah. I, think those are I can't three, take credit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I can't, can't take credit for the name. Um, but uh, so Art Love Magic came about. So like I said, I was in the ministry, uh, decided, you know, that wasn't the direction I was wanting to go in. And I've always been creative. Uh, I was very creative in high school. Um, but again, when I got involved in ministry, that was kind of, okay, well, that's what you need to give that up and got to focus on, on theology and ecclesiology and all the ologies. Uh, again, the, the wreck kind of allowed me to just get honest with myself and just say, you know what, I'm a creative. I'm always, I always have been a creative. I'm always going to be uh, a creative in some, in some sort. 
And, uh, and this was 2006 at that point for about four years, I'd been, uh, producing live art events kind of on the side as a hobby, um, with some friends around Dallas. And we'd do everything from the deep Ellum live venue to, uh, trees to coffee shops, you know, just kind of anywhere we could. So, uh, my art, if you will, I kind of play guitar and, you know, was, was in, uh, in a band and, but I, I began to realize like my art was creating space for creatives to be creative. Um, whether that was a physical location, whether that was an event, uh, whether it's a workshop, it, it was, it was in the, the production, you know, kind of, uh, dreaming up a vision of a, of, of, of an experience and then, um, bringing the resources and the, and the people together to, to, to create that. And, uh, so after, uh, we decided to, uh, to, to end the church of just like within a week or two, I got a call from a friend who had helped start that church and he was no longer involved and said, he said, Hey, you know, I'm working with this guy in this organization, in this company, and he's telling me he wants to start an arts organization to mentor artists and, uh, you know, give them positive, uh, support and community. And again, serendipity, right? I was, I, there was, I was intentional. I was moving in that direction, but serendipity, I, I never in a million years could have predicted that he was going to make that phone call. Uh, so basically said, okay, yeah, let's sit down, let's talk. Uh, that was the end of 2006. Um, and the original idea was a little bit more focused on, um, kind of the graphic illustrator, uh, community. Uh, both the founders are graphic illustrators, very heavily into the comic, uh, comics world, graphic novel world. And so that was a little bit of the, that was the majority of the focus. Um, and then the live art production would be just kind of a component. And uh, we could not have predicted the response that we got. We launched our first show in February 2007. And uh, before the doors were open, there were people lined up uh, at the doors halfway through the show. And, and now mind you, the show itself, the experience is all focused around live art. And my kind of tagline was tearing down the wall between the creator and the spectator. You go to a gallery, you might hear a, an art talk from the, 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 the artist, but you never really get to see what their process is like. You never really get to get in their head and in their, in their creative space. And so uh, these events were designed to do just that, to get you as an attendee, as a, as a, as a spectator, into the creative's space and even creating with them, right? So this whole, art, the whole uh, production itself became an artistic uh, experience. Um, so yeah, halfway through the first event, the, the gallery owners were asking us when the next one was gonna be. Um, and I think in our first year, uh, we did like close to 30 uh, events uh, within the first year, it might be even more. Um, and, uh, it really took on a life of its own. Um, and so, you know, I, I was really heavily involved with Art Love Magic probably for the first three, three and a half years. And, um, so oh nine, uh, when I was laid off, that was when I kind of had to pull, pull back a little bit, kind of feel like, um, it's on its third generation uh, of leadership. So I'm kind of the, you know, grandpa, uh, grant founding grandpa, uh, of the organization, but they're still going. Um, kids workshops is one of the more, uh, like kind of the ongoing, uh, events that they do. They, uh, partner with the Latino cultural arts center a couple times a year and kids can come in. It's free to the public. Nobody pays for, 
uh, pays to attend, and we set it up um, studio style for the kids, so they can choose, pick and choose what they want to engage in. So you might have a potter that's there, and they can sit there and do pottery for four hours if they want, or they can, you know, make a pot and then go over to the, um, you know, the the uh, the origami table, and spend a you know a few minutes there. Um, it's a lot of fun, you know. It's really designed to create that opportunity for parents and their kids to 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 be creative together. Certainly, one of the themes of this show is the intersection between art, business, and community. Because mm. I think there is an intersection there, and and um, probably what you've just described is uh, is one of those intersections. People used to ask me, kind of like, "Well, what's your art?" You know, they, yeah. we'd be in the gallery yeah. and they say, "Well, yeah. oh, is that your piece?" No, no, I don't have a piece on the wall. You're standing in my right, right, my creative experience. Um, and you're right. I think you know, uh, in order to nurture both sides of that community, the artistic community and the business community, um, you know, there should be cross-pollination. Uh, you know, we're in, in the room right now, local artist, we've got, you know, a couple of pieces behind you, um, Leighton Autry. Uh, you know, and I, I've tried to be very intentional about supporting the arts community and, and bringing that, um, the, the creative energy into the, 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 the business community. But like you said, the, the flip side is also converse, you know, how, uh, you know, what, what can the organizational development uh, side of uh, the business community, how, how can we use those tools and those gifts to, to organize the, the creative community? Um, you know, and, you know, I, I would venture to say that, you know, back in 2007, when Art Love Magic started, there really wasn't you know, uh, a strong creative community. There were a few arts organizations that were doing some great things, but there wasn't really a sense of, you know, as Dallas, we're owning an identity. Uh, you know, you, you would, at that point, if you really wanted to become a serious artist, you would move to Austin. You know? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> it was default, you know, and, and you know, uh, kind of my mentality and my approach was stop. Stop doing that if, and, and qu quit complaining. Right, you are the ones that have the power to make that community. Nobody else is going to do it for you, <laughs> you know. And if somebody doesn't take the initiative in beginning again, back to narrative, uh, in 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 writing that narrative, it's not going to happen, right? So, I mean, that was a, a big call for us in the very beginning. Was like, stop leaving, stay here, and fight for the city, you know, with uh, with us. Um, and you know, I, I think, and I, I think others would agree, but I, I think Dallas is a better place for it. You know, um, you know, our creative community is pretty strong now. It's a lovely segue onto the section of uh, uh, talk about um, Dallas. So, mm -hmm. how do you explain Dallas? What's the heart and soul of Dallas? And um, we, did you grow up here, or you? Yeah. So uh, I was born in Southern California. Um, grew up on the beach, skateboarding, and all that good stuff. Uh, moved to Dallas when I was 14, 15, and uh, just like any Southern California kid coming to Dallas, I hated the idea of it. I didn't want to leave the beach, didn't want to leave my friends. Uh, you know, it was convinced in my mind that you know everybody lived on ranches and rode horses to school and 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 all of that. Um, so I, I was surprised, you know, I was pleasantly surprised when I actually did get here. Uh, it wasn't as bad as I thought. Um, but apart from three, four years when I lived in West Texas going to school at Sol Ross, I've been in Dallas since. And Dallas, 
I, I, I have absolutely fallen in love with this city. It is the city that I will fight for with everything that I have because I believe in her. Um, I wouldn't take the, the, the risks and the steps that I, that I've taken over the last, uh, you know, 10 years, uh, if I didn't believe in Dallas, you know, I would have moved to Austin. Like why stay here? You know, um, why try and start, you know, a new organization from the ground that's going to support the arts community when the arts community doesn't even believe in itself. Um, but it's because I believe in the city. I believe in, uh, in, in the potential uh, that's here. And then same thing with the impact community. Uh, you know, there, there weren't a lot of resources here in Dallas for, uh, for the impact community, very spread out, you know, and you, and you had to know the right people to get connected to the right thing. Um, but again, I believe in the impact community, uh, in our city and, and, and want to see, uh, want to see it thrive. Um, now that being said, uh, you know, I've told people in the past, if Dallas is my wife, uh, Fort Worth and Denver are my mistresses. <laughs> right. uh, they have done some amazing things that, uh, that I believe show the potential of, of what Dallas can be uh, and, and, and has the opportunity to, to, to become. But again, it's, you know, it's work. It's not just something that pops up overnight, and it's definitely definitely not something that's going to come from the mayor's office. Um, you know, it's going to come from people on the street, you know, feet on the ground, uh, who, who believe in, uh, the potential, the potential of the city. So, um, you know, I, uh, I, I won't stop fighting for this city. Um, there, there, there's, there's too much good to be done. There seems to be a bit of still a frontier mentality amongst uh, some of the folks here that are kind of uh, digging in to, uh, especially working across the, you know, art cultural space and, and, and other things. I mean, uh, as a lot of people will be quick to point out, oh, we've got, you know, in Dallas, we've got arts and culture, you know, we've got this. Uh, this we've got the largest arts district. We, we have the largest arts district in the country. I mean, that's saying something. Though if you walk around the streets, it doesn't always feel like exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. I'm not exactly. sure they keep keep Dallas weird. Is is kind of right. you know maybe, maybe uh, that's been used that phrase. They'll have to come yeah. up with a, a new one. But yeah. uh, th there's certainly a number of individuals, and some of them already been on on the uh, the show already, and hopefully get to speak to a lot more that that. Um, are intentionally trying to create a community, recognize uh, where Dallas is. There's lots of opportunities. And, and one of the greatest opportunities or, or um, characteristics of Dallas is the ability to start something and, and the community that is, is quite small and connected still to support mm -hmm. that. I don't think anyone goes, oh, I hope there's no more culture here. <laughs> no, no, I don't want to help that person trying to make the city better. I don't think right. I've, I've ever heard that. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, I, I think about, kind of the, the story of the West End. Um, you know, the West End is the original downtown Dallas. The very first buildings built in Dallas were, were built here. And, you know, it took a major entrepreneurial spirit uh, to get the city up and started. You know, there weren't a lot of natural resources. We had the, you know, the Trinity River, and that was, <laughs> uh, that was pretty much it. And I, I think that that, that, that spirit uh, has stuck with the city. Um, and, uh, the, the question is, 
and again, it's kind of call to action. The question is whether or not people are willing to step up to the challenge of creating something new and, and contributing something positive to the landscape of our city. Uh, so one of the, 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 the best projects that I've seen that's kind of in this vein of starting community and, and bringing something positive to, to the landscape is Aurora. You know, that was just a dream. You know, that was just a vision. Um, but they've done an amazing job of not only collaborating with um, the local Dallas community, but internationally, you know, and, and, and working with folks who have you know, pulled off some amazing things around the world. Uh, and I believe that's one of the greatest creative assets that, that our city has. Is that the only opportunity to do something great and creative for our city? Absolutely not. <laughs> you know, um, you know, there's 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 opportunity galore. But again, you know, it's it's the work. So Aurora, and I know, um, is kind of they studied the vivid um, festival in Sydney. You know, and that's been a, a a similar type of thing for those folks. Will be well aware of it if if, if you're in Sydney. It's growing every year, where they light up the Opera House now right, in right. in various things. And I, I think there's just something. It, what seems like such a simple idea, but lighting up buildings and then taking that to the next level and making the buildings art um, has got. A, apart from the visual spectacle, I think there's a deeper psychological <laughs> thing, which kind of says, "Look, here's an overlay. Here's a creative, organic overlay on the um, on the concrete buildings that are around here in our city, in the way that we can project whatever we like on the city and make it whatever we like." Yeah, uh, yeah. The one of my favorite ones that they've done that they did was about. I think it was not this past one that they did, but uh, where they lit up the Wiley, uh, the Wiley Theater. And it was basically like 3D uh, map projecting. And no matter where you walked around, it was this just amazing cinematic uh, experience. Um, but uh, yeah, transforming space. Uh, you know, when you walk through or you drive through the arts district, your, you know, your brain begins to pattern and, and you have your expectation of what my, your experience is going to be. Same thing anywhere downtown. Um, but, uh, you know, creating opportunities for people to think differently about space and uh, what they expect out of space. You know, is this simply a place for me to come and go inside of a building to experience the the, the artistic creative factor, or is the building the canvas? Right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I love I love what Josh and those guys are doing, man. It's great. Let's uh, take some time to talk about any other projects that you're working on that you want the listeners to hear about. Yeah, um, got a few. One of those uh, is. Uh, current working title is the Aspen Project. And this kind of came out of conversations that we've had over the last few years around um, access to mentors in both the startup and the impact uh, community. There's you know, kind of a, a semi-formalized process in the startup community of doing kind of whiteboard hours and uh, office hours and those types of things. But just through conversations, people began expressing just longing for more depth out, uh, out of those relationships rather than just a one hour, um, uh, a one hour talk. And so Aspen Project is designed to uh, connect people over a longer period of time with, with potential mentors as well as advisors, kind of these kind of more one-off, uh, one hour opportunities. Um, so hopefully that'll uh, end of summer or, or fall. 
those will be six month uh, cohorts that anywhere from five to 10 businesses will go through at a time and we'll, we'll basically curate the mentor uh, opportunities for, uh, for those businesses. Uh, I'm working with uh, a consultant and author, a guy named Gary De Rodriguez, and we're creating a uh, two module um, business intensive experience that will walk startup uh, owners and, and social entrepreneurs through both the process of validating their business model, um, which we did last year here with the Unreasonable Institute. Um, here at the Grove. Uh, so validating their business model and then also um, diving deep on managerial uh, and, and leadership uh, skills. So folks that are kind of on in early stage are getting access to those tools that they'll need to implement uh, as, they, uh, as they scale. And uh, continuing to work with uh, social venture partners so we've been working on that relationship for a couple of years and we're actually a co-production partner with them on uh on big bang uh this year so i'm really really uh really excited about that that's a, a conference theme impact investing is the theme this year for yeah so big bang uh i believe the website is bigbangtx.com an annual uh event in the past they've done topics like uh, collective impact um, you know, just general kind of social impact awareness. And, and this year's theme is on specifically on impact investing. Okay. Um, I, I rarely get around. We normally run out of time and I think we are, but um, uh, tell us about sauerkraut. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. Yeah. Um, so uh, I've recently uh, discovered just in the last a year or two or so, uh, and I just really love cooking. I love cooking. Um, when I was married, my wife, uh, she loved to cook and, uh, you know, I'd cook every once in a while, but, um, you know, I, I, I just didn't, I didn't love it. I liked it. Um, just the last, last couple of years, man, I've just, just discovered that I love the process. I love the picking out of the ingredients and, you know, how does the flavors affect each other and all those types of things. Uh, Years ago, I used to brew my own beer. I brewed my own beer for about three years. Uh, and around that time, uh, my ex, she started doing the fermenting uh, of like vegetables and all those types of things. Uh, there's a great book called Wild Fermentation by Sandor Katz. And uh, you know that kind of became the, the second Bible in our house. Um, and uh, so just, you know, I don't know, probably I don't know, three or four months ago, uh, I, um, after my layoff developed some really bad, uh, intestinal issues with, uh, with all the stress and all that colitis and all that nasty stuff and started studying around, uh, probiotics and natural remedies to address those issues and, uh, started taking probiotics, which helped a lot. But then the more I read is like, you know, the, the, the fresher you can get it, um, obviously the better. So and I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to start fermenting again. And, uh, so bought a fermenter. Uh, at the suggestion of a friend a, a, about a month or so ago, and man, I'm diving in. Uh, I finished my first first batch. I let it ferment for about a week. Probably could have gone longer. Um, and uh, I've been eating that over the Fourth of July weekend. I haven't died yet, so uh, I'm assuming it's okay. Uh, on my second batch, uh, actually second and third batch now, and it's, a, it's just a lot of fun, you know. And I, I love sharing too. So like being able to to, to take what you've created and watch somebody like, like man really enjoy it and uh, it's, it's it's a lot of fun i know certainly 
Um, I know people in Dallas certainly eat out a lot and I did when I was in my corporate job quite a lot you know and this kind of you know have you tried this restaurant and this kind of food and you get quite picky about it and I think it's a completely different uh, philosophy of, of life when you when you cook more uh, you know it's not an inconvenience it's an opportunity to to, to meditate and to ex- express yourself and, and to relate to other people in a different way if Absolutely. I can put it that way. Yeah, I, I, I like the idea of it being uh, kind of a contemplative exercise because um, it, you know, it causes you to focus. It causes you to slow down and be in the moment. You know, be aware of 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 uh, you know of what's happening right then, right then and there. Uh, and again, yeah, like you said, the bigger the the bigger reward is the sharing. You know, uh, my buddy Jeff yesterday, I shared the crowd with him. He's like, man. That was amazing. He's like, I wouldn't pay for it, but I would eat it all day long. <laughs> like, okay, that's good feedback. You know, now I know. Like, there, there's there's room for there's room for improvement. But um, but yeah, that 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 shared sense of of community of being able to enjoy the 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 experience together is is, is huge. I think it's, I think it's nice. So we talk about small changes or, or just small things changing your attitude. Um, you know, measure of success being what restaurants you've been to and how you rate them on, on Yelp or whatever, right. you know, so versus, you know, the meals you've made and, and uh, you know, who you've shared those with. I yeah. think I, I think it's, it's kind of cool. And I, I don't spend any time watching the Food Channel or anything like that, but uh, I spend a lot more time cooking um, than I have in my whole life, yeah. <laughs> I think, recently. And Yeah. Likewise. I mean, I, I've, I've uh, grilled more in the last two months and I have in my entire life. Yeah. Like, <laughs> likewise, we've got that in common and, uh, I, it's just an amazing, amazing thing. Um, and you know, I, I've, I learned since I was in, uh, moved to the U S the, the difference between grilling and barbecue because yeah. uh, in Australia we've got a barbie <laughs> and I'm talking about barbecuing and people are confused about <laughs> something about yeah. smoking meats in and burning wood and all that sort of stuff. And now I'm yeah. a, I'm a griller. I've got a grill and, and you know, I'm, uh, I'm there. It's a distinction. <laughs> okay. So any other final words for the listeners, anything else you want to leave final words you want to leave? Uh, no, not really. I mean, this is uh, this has been great. I think, you know, one thing that really kind of hit me while we were talking is just the, the idea of people getting in the community, you know, get, get out and find your people. Um, you know, there are people out there who, if you are willing to begin taking the steps in the direction that you're wanting to go, that, that they're, they're willing to be your support. You know, they're, they're willing to, um, help you build the bridge as you're walking on it. Um, you know, that's, uh, don't, don't sell yourself short, you know, uh, own your identity and, uh, in, engage it as much as possible. Justin Ogren, thanks for joining me today. Absolutely. Thanks.